Good morning. I appreciate the song that we sang this morning, the idea that more of you, less of me, it's only you need to see. As someone that is on staff but doesn't preach that much, I appreciate that as I was preparing to come up here this morning. Uh, My name is Ryan. I'm on staff. I work with the students. Grateful to be up here this morning. And if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we've been the last several weeks. Uh, We'd like to study through entire books or entire letters chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And if you've been following along with us, we're getting into the middle parts where things are getting kind of heavy. It's getting hard to hear some of this. If you're someone that's new or has hit and miss a little bit, that's fine. But it's almost as though if you step into what we're going to talk about today, it's as though you've stepped into a conversation that you haven't been a part of, a conversation where your friends are having and you walk in, you're like, you have no idea what's going on. Or it'd be similar to you stepping in with your friends or watching a movie and you haven't seen the movie before and there's a kind of a weird scene going on. You're like, what, what's happening? What's the context? It would not be unlike if your friends are watching the movie Forrest Gump and you have not seen it, and all of a sudden this scene comes up. Yeah, I know what we're all going to have for lunch today, right? A nice shrimp po' boy. But it's like watching in or walking in on that scene, you're like, I don't know what's going on. Someone please give me the context. What's happening? And so if you haven't been with us, 1 Corinthians is just a letter between Paul, the spiritual father who's planted this church in the city of Corinth. It's a Roman city. It's well-to-do, but it also is very, very immoral. And as Paul is writing, he cares for this church. He wants them to grow up and mature. He knows that it's an uphill climb. But he's also heard some reports about how this church has not gotten it right all the time. And so Paul, even though he is taking this role of spiritual father, he wants to to walk them along. He also wants to to get them moving. And he's going to be direct and specific. And if you were here last week, that's one of the times where he was direct and specific, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm not going to get into the details of that. But essentially what Paul is saying is to the Corinthian church, God is holy, guys. And you can't live your life here and then expect to be able to also have this other piece of your life over here that God has no control of, no domain over. That's not how it works. God wants all of you, not just some of you, and God can't tolerate your sin. So Corinthian church, why are you tolerating it? Why have you become so comfortable with your sin? And so Paul is going to continue that conversation by bringing in another report that he's heard to help illustrate this point, to help answer the question, guys, why... Why are you so comfortable with your sin? Because what's happening in the Corinthian church is there's, become, there's some disputes that have arisen, some small things, but the small things have become bigger and they become really big. They've boiled over and now we have to deal with them. Now we have to address them. But rather than addressing them in the church, we're going to go to the legal courts in Corinth to solve the problem. People that have nothing to do with the church and have no understanding of who God is or what the Bible says. And Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians 6, guys, you have abandoned God's standard. You've established and created your own. You've adopted this standard of the Corinthian church. We read about it in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1. So if you've got a Bible, follow along. When one of you has a grievance against another, Paul says, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous in Corinth instead of the saints? 
Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? There's a lot to be said about what Paul is speaking here, but essentially he's saying, hey guys, what, what you're dealing with, these small things are, are small. They're small potatoes. God has called you to bigger and better things, so let's get going into those bigger and better things. But Paul says, hey, so, okay, you have some of those cases. Why do you lay them before those who are, have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. He's really saying this to spur them on, to wake them up. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but instead one brother goes to law against another brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Paul's saying the fact that there is these disputes at all shows me, tells me that there is a bigger problem here. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul's appealing to the life and ministry of Jesus. He's saying, look, you remember Jesus, don't you? You remember him. That's the model. That's the standard. But you yourselves, you're the ones that are wronging and defrauding others, others in the church. Essentially, Paul is saying, guys, you don't take God seriously. You don't take your sin seriously. Why do I know that that's the case? It's because you've adopted these other standards. You've got some disputes. Okay, I get that. But why are you going to people that have no sense of what the Bible has to say? Why are you appealing to them to determine what is right and wrong, how you should act? Paul's saying, God's called you to a higher standard. Remember the life of Jesus. And I wonder, as Paul is asking these questions and making these claims to the Corinthian church, that we can't stop as this group of people to say, are those questions applicable to us this morning? Are there times when we adopt standards of the culture and allow the cultural standard to determine what is good and bad, what is right and wrong, and whether it's implicit or explicit, we allow that to determine our actions and our decisions? I was thinking about that a little bit. A couple examples came to mind. I don't mean to be heavy-handed or legalistic about this, but Paul is getting right to the center of what's going on, and in that same mind, I want to talk about these things. I want to talk about what we watch as adults. Maybe in years past, we've talked about, hey, with the media, uh, with TV, it's, the, it's, it's, the, it's cable TV. It's horrible. Okay, but we've moved past cable TV. That's a dinosaur. Now we've got things like Netflix and Amazon Prime and Disney Plus and Seems like there's all these other streaming services which put out their own content based on their own standards of what is acceptable and not as acceptable. Let's take Netflix, for example. Okay, I have Netflix, all right? Uh, but if you look at most of the content that they put out, it is rated MA, mature. And you can go online, you can look at the definition. What does that mean according, according to Netflix? It means that the show's content will contain foul language, graphic violence, graphic, sexual activity, or any combination of these elements. But disclaimer, Netflix says as long as you're over 18, then it's perfectly fine. It's perfectly fine. So how many of us have adults have said, hey, I'm over 18, I'm mature enough, I can handle these kinds of things, I can see the graphic sexual activity, I can see the graphic violence, and it's not going to impact me at all. I think at times we buy into the lie, we allow the culture to set the standard of what is acceptable and what is not. Let me speak to the teenagers, the young people, right? My job as student minister is to help train up the next generation. Um, when I think about some of the bigger challenges, it has to do with technology, social media, phones. Uh, if you were here last week, you know Rob talked about phones and how when they are left unguarded, they are literally a gateway to the cesspool of our culture. I tend to agree with that. Uh, students that work with me here at New Hope know my position on that. But if you talk to the students, they're going to say, hey, social media, it's... It's just the way that we do things. This is how we communicate. This is how we connect. 
And in some ways that's true, but let's take Snapchat, for example, one of the social media platforms that's quite popular. Sure, you can have your snap streaks, and yes, you, which most of you don't even know what that is, and that's perfectly fine. Um, you can communicate, you can stay connected. But the reason why Snapchat is as popular as it is is because you can send media that disappears. Why would you ever want that to happen, I wonder? And we forget as parents that when we give our students social media and we allow them to have unfettered reign and they are communicating, they want to stay connected, they want to do this, there's this underbelly of things. Because we forget that the reason why Snapchat was created in the first place is you had two male college students that had been to a party. They'd come back and we're talking after the party and one of the male college students says to the other, hey, I really want to send some pictures to one of the girls that I saw at the party, but I wish they would disappear. Those are the founders of Snapchat. That's the reason why it was created. Have we adopted implicitly or explicitly some of the standards of our culture? One final example, and it has to do with just the general busyness of our lives. I have three kids. I, I'm beginning to understand as my oldest is now six, and we're having to figure out what are we going to sign up for over the summer. We've got swim lessons and upward and this, that, and the other. I, I get that. But what the problem is, and those things are all good, and I, I understand that, but when we allow our our culture to tell us what is important and what we need to sign up for. What I see as a student pastor here is that the very last thing that someone's ever going to sign up for is a trip that I would offer, something that the church would offer. I mean, today is actually our sign up for summer trips. I can count the number of middle school and high school students on one hand that have signed up. And that's not to guilt anyone. I get the fact that it's a difficult decision to make, but sometimes we adopt the cultural standards of what we're supposed to do and what a summer looks like. And maybe the reason why our students adopt this so easily is because they look at the lives of us as parents and they see the busyness and they see where we spend our time and our focus. And for many of us adult men, we care more about who's going to be leading the huddle for the Indianapolis Colts this next year than taking the time to be intentional about being the spiritual leader in the holy huddle of our families at home. Sometimes we buy into these standards. And again, I don't want to be heavy-handed. I don't want to be legalistic. But what Paul is saying, what he continues to say, if you look down in verse 9, he's saying the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. He's saying that to the Corinthian church, and we're saying it here this morning, don't be deceived. Well, what, what does that mean? Could that mean that the culture is feeding us a bunch of lies that we need to make sure that we don't fall for? Yes, that's true. But at the same time, we can't fall for the lies that we tell ourselves. The way that we self-rationalize. If you were here last week, you know, Rob talked about that, our propensity to want to make excuses or to act like we are okay, that it doesn't apply to us. It doesn't apply to us. J.I. Packer, famous author, wrote the book Knowing God. He says it this way, we can never distrust ourselves too much. We can never distrust ourselves too much. So Paul is saying, and I am saying through his words, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters or adulterers Men who practice homosexuality or thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is saying, you become too comfortable in your own sin. You've abandoned God's standard, and you've adopted implicitly or explicitly the standards of the culture. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the, that standard when it comes to sex. In 1 Corinthians 6, he talks about the legal standard. But in the end, he's saying, don't you realize that if we're going to define life on our own terms, if we're going to adopt these standards, that we become the kind of people that God does not use to build his kingdom with? And so it's as though Paul is saying, hey, you want to define sex on your own terms? God's kingdom isn't for you. You want to make idols of things that aren't the God of the universe? Then his kingdom isn't for you. 
you think it's okay to take things that aren't yours, whether they're physical objects or other people, then God's kingdom probably isn't for you. You want to give money or the pursuit of money more importance than God. His kingdom isn't for you. You want to cope by using food or alcohol or screen images. Rather than being satisfied in God alone, then his kingdom isn't for you. If you want to enter into this pattern and circle of using and abusing everything that we find in this world, then his kingdom isn't for you. Because essentially what we've done is we've set up our own kingdom. We want to sit on the throne. It's not going to last, but that's what we decide to do. And the problem is when we define life on our own terms, when we establish our own kingdom, everything falls apart. Everything falls apart. If you look back at your life, this is true. When you look back at the lives of those in our Bible, the same is true. Let me give you two examples. One would be Exodus 32. Moses is on Mount Sinai. He's up at the top. He's communing with God, this special relationship where God wants to be with his people again. They're figuring out how that's going to work. But all the while, you've got people, the rest of the Israelite nation, that are down at the bottom of the mountain. And Moses is up there 40 days, and they're thinking, where is he? Moses and God become out of sight, out of mind, and they decide that they're going to establish life on their own terms. They're going to make God, literally, you're going to cast him in their own image. And in Exodus 32, it says that they ate and drank and rose up to play, which is just another way of saying everything started falling apart. Everything started falling apart. Another example, if we continue the biblical narrative, you've got uh, Joshua, who leads everyone, leads the, the nation into the promised land. Everything is good, but then you get to chapter 1, chapter 2 of Judges, and the Bible says that his nation and Joshua, they pass away, and there arose another generation that did not know God or anything that he had done. And if you read that book, it's just this downward spiral into chaos and ruin. And the book ends literally with this line, Judges 21, 25, hey, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which is just another way of saying everything started to fall apart. Because when we establish our own kingdom, that's what happens. When we define life on our own terms, that's what happens. But Paul, being the spiritual father he is to this Corinthian church, we've seen that in chapter 4, and now he brings it out again. He wants to remind them as a spiritual father that the things that they used to do, even the things they are still doing, do not define them. They don't define them. Paul is saying, you know, what defines you is the fact that God loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you, and that finished work on the cross, that is what defines you. You see what he says there in verse 11? He says, and such were some of you, and such were some of you, to put the emphasis in the right place, and such were some of you, the things you used to do, the person you used to be, and maybe the, same, the, person, the things that you do now and the person you are now, that's not who you really are. Why? Because you were washed, you were sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So when we acknowledge that Christ really is Lord, when we say your kingdom is, is coming and so mine's got to go, we're going to lay our crowns aside, we submit to his lordship in the waters of baptism, and guess what? It's God's justifying work that defines us. It is God's justifying work that defines us. And so then as we begin to walk with God, he gives us his spirit. As the spirit begins to move inside of us and make us look like Jesus, so that is what defines us. To, uh, to borrow from imagery that Paul uses in other places, Paul is saying that what God is trying to do is he is starting to institute a building project in your life. It's not some outward thing. It's the building project of your inner life. He wants to make you, inform you, inform your heart into the kind of place that he wants to be where we can connect with him, where we can communicate with him, where true worship flows from. It's not unlike what we see in the Old Testament with the temple. 
That's where God was. That's where he was worshiped. That's where he made his home. And Paul is saying, hey, that's what God is wanting to do with you. He is wanting to form you and to build you into the kind of person, the kind of life that he wants as part of his kingdom. But he's also saying, Paul is, he's implying that God's building project can be stopped when you don't take your sin seriously, when you become too comfortable, when you define life on your own terms. Because we were never meant for that. We were never meant to define life on our own terms. I mean, if you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and you see how God designed everything, he forms everything, then he begins to fill it. Again, he makes the plants and the animals first. But when he makes the plants, he doesn't have to come over and have a side conversation with the plants and say, hey, this is what it means to be a good plant. No, it's baked into their nature. That's great. He makes the, the animals. He doesn't have to come over here and have a side conversation with the dogs and cats and say, this is what it means to be a good dog, or this is what it means to be an evil cat. Okay? It's already baked into a cat's nature. It's already baked into this nature. He doesn't have to come and do that. But when he makes human beings, he immediately has a conversation. He brings Adam and Eve close, and he reminds them who they are, what they're to do, what life is all about. God creates the standards because we are meant, unlike the rest of creation, we are meant to de- and designed to live in communion with him where he defines the terms, where he sets the standards, where he builds us into the kind of people that are part of his kingdom. It's the building project that he has started. Let me finish this way. When I lived in Haiti with my wife, uh, we were there a couple years, we were in port au the city, and if you were to visit there, as some of the students were able to visit a few weeks back, and walk around the city, what you would find is that there are many, many structures, homes that are not actually finished. Some have foundations, but no walls. Others have uh, walls, but no roof. They look a whole lot like this, and you're looking at yourself, and you're thinking, what happened here? Why did the building stop? And in Haiti, there are lots of reasons for that, but you're thinking, what happens? Because the longer that the, the building remains undone, I mean, if you were to come back in a couple of years, you're hoping, like, surely they've made some progress, and you come and it looks the same, except now there's more trash. They burn the trash that becomes the city dump. It becomes the city dump. And I, I wonder, as I look at those pictures, I'm thinking, what caused the building project to stop? And then I think, wow, what if Jesus walked around this church, walked around our lives, followed us around, but he wasn't so concerned about the, what we project on the outside. He's more concerned about the state of our heart. Would he ask the same question? Would he ask the question, why did the building stop? Why is the project incomplete? What happened here? Because for us, oftentimes it's easier to see the, someone else's life and the building project that's not done in someone else's life I mean, earlier we're saying hi and waving hands, but you're looking at that person, you're like, oh, they, they still do that. They're still messed up, which is true. We're a room full of messed up people. It's easy to see the problems in other people's lives, but it's harder to look in our own heart and to assess what's really happening here. And so I want to leave us with a couple questions of application. I think they're implied by what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. The first is this. What standards are you living by? Really, think about what dictates what you say and where you go and how you live, the work that you do, have we bought into some of the standards that our culture has offered? Have we bought into the lie? Paul says, do not be deceived. Let us not be deceived. Let's think, does everything that we do come from and meet with, meet up to the standard that Jesus sets in his word? That would be question number one. Question number two is this, what condition is God's building project 
in your life, in my life. No one else can see. I mean, it, it is true to say that the building project is never going to actually be done. But is the work stopped because you're too comfortable with your sin? Am I too comfortable with my sin? See, Paul gets right to the point. He doesn't want us to lie to ourselves. He doesn't want us to buy into the, the lies of our culture. But in the same way that he doesn't just ask questions, that he reminds the people that it is not what we have done or are doing that defines that. It is what Jesus has done in the waters of baptism. I want to remind us as well that that's where it starts. That for some of us, the building work has stopped because we've forgotten our first love. For others of us, the building work hasn't started because we just need to start asking the right questions and having a conversation with God. That conversation can start today. God wants that conversation to start today. Because God is in the building of taking what we've given him and reshaping it and molding it into something that looks a whole lot like a temple. And so the first thing that we can do is begin that conversation in prayer by telling him, thank you for being so patient with us. Thank you for pursuing us. And maybe now is the time where we start to say, God, I want to build your kingdom in my life. So let's go to him in prayer. Father, when we say that you're a father, we really mean that. You're the kind of person, the kind of God that sees everything that we do and is patient enough to allow us to realize our mistake and to turn back to you. Father, when we decide to build our own kingdoms, we see time and time again that they fall apart. We need something better. We need a foundation that is worth building on. And so, Father, we know that the life of Jesus is the, is the best response to the brokenness that we see in our own hearts. That Jesus loved us enough to come and to die the death we couldn't. And so, Father, help us to respond to that in real and practical ways. That we may not look the same because we have walked with you. And we ask for that grace in Jesus' name. Amen.